up for the occasion He sat down upon his throne But he promised us he'd fix it so we'd never be alone Rising up for the occasion Down came what we needed most To lead and guide and live inside his friends Hey folks, I have got um, Scott Saul, Senior Pastor of Christ Pres. Presbyterian Church here in Nashville um, to talk with us today. Um, I definitely would uh, crave his insight uh, historically, theologically, and of course just uh, perspectively uh, of what happened in the beginnings of the church, which um, is what this musical Kingdom Come is about. Welcome, Scott. How you doing? Good to be with you, Jeff. Well, thanks. You know, we're, we're Everyone who I have on the show here, I always immediately, the first question is, how are you doing during this, this quarantine time? Uh, we're, we're, you know, faring well, I think. I mean, we're, we're well provided for. Uh, we, we, uh, we have food every day. We have shelter. We have clothing. Uh, we're able to be with the people that we love. And thankfully, due to online technology we're able to do a lot of you know church things virtually and you know it's certainly not ideal by any stretch but we're we're trying to trying to focus on what we can be grateful for during this time well you know as much as i always find myself it's so easy for me to poo poo technology i definitely find that this is definitely a great example of where things that usually drive us crazy actually can be very helpful uh, yeah, like like this time here, where you know, for example, having church at breakfast uh, is is a new thing for us. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. we won't get too used to that <laughs> while we're having our pancakes and singing uh, the, the doxology. But um, I definitely, you know, have a you know a history with Christ Presbyterian Church. You know, when we first moved here, when I was a little kid, that was where we went. Um, and my mom, um, who passed away a few years ago, she was for a long time, uh, a teacher at Christ Presbyterian Academy. And uh, so many of the great things that happen in that big building just bring great memories to me. And it is is great to continue to go. And uh, just recently going to the Messiah was just an incredible, incredible time. It would have, yeah. would have, uh, would have been great to have an actual Easter in there. But um, as you say, we're, we're moving forward. Um, yeah. With, with the technology that we have. Well, my dad, you know, also who um, had done some worship leading at, at Christ Prez and, and, and the Daughter Church Christ Community, at some point during the late 80s, took one of his ideas to take uh, the Cotton Patch Gospel, which was a, a written, I guess, in the 70s, I don't know, it basically took the Gospel of Matthew and, and converted it into Southern American uh, language. And he had an idea to continue that style of writing into a musical, the book of Acts. So he took all the characters like Saul and, and, and Peter and, and all the apostles and, and gave them a new setting, which, which in this case is in, down in Georgia, very similar to the Cotton Patch Gospel. So all of this is if the beginnings of the church had actually taken place in uh, that time and era, which is the 1950s uh, Southern U.S. And so he found a, a great setting and then began to write songs, which uh, lent itself to sort of country, bluegrass, Southern rock, uh, even some uh, big gospel choir moments in the show. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that being said, um, a lot of people that I've had uh, 
the privilege to involve in this show, and also a lot of people who have listened to it are still kind of newbies uh, to, I mean, they know who Jesus is and they know who, um, you know, some of the saints are and, and, and that kind of thing. But the book of Acts is so rich and, I, and I, it's, it's the starting point, really. So I wondered if maybe I could just roll a couple questions at you. Like, number one, what happened historically in the book of Acts? Well, the Gospels tell us of the coming of Jesus and uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, which is written by the Gospel writer Luke. It's sort of a, a sequel or a next you know, series of chapters to, to what he wrote in the Gospel according to Luke. But the book of Acts, uh, Luke introduces as a book about all that Jesus continued to say and to do. The interesting Part of that is that Christ had died and risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father, you know, by the time you get to the middle of the first chapter of Acts, and then you've got 28 <laughs> whole chapters where Jesus is not present in the flesh, except on rare occasions, like when he appeared to the Apostle Paul and, and or to Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul and such. And so what Acts has been historically known as is the book about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, the Gospels, the four Gospels, are about the coming of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And the book of Acts is about how he sends the Holy Spirit uh, after he ascends into heaven, and the Spirit is poured out on the disciples, and you get the day of Pentecost uh, in the second chapter, which is on a single day, the day that, that Christianity went global. Uh, you have people speaking the gospel in uh, the languages of the nations, uh, the size of, of the Church of Jesus Christ grows in one moment from 120 followers to over 2,000, uh, and then you get the missionary journeys of, <clears throat> of the Apostle Paul after he's converted in chapter 9, and the, we get his missionary journeys where he plants churches and in different cities and establishes the church in, in Asia Minor and the different cities there. And then you get the missionary uh, activity of Peter and Peter's sermons, uh, his public sermons as well. And it's off to the races. It, it, it was the beginning of, of the disciples obeying the Great Commission that Christ gave to them at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Yeah, and you can see that it, it just right there, it's very easy to, to find a historical significance because this is history. I mean, there's this actually happened. Um, and so on a, on a sort of historical, just significant moment, this, this, this just kind of pinpoints it for us all to find. Um, but what, what does this, what does this, what theologically happened? It, it, uh, you know, obviously this set, this took originally, was set in the, in the Near East, so we have all of these Judaic things all happening, and then things all get uh, crazy. <laughs> so, uh, what 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 is the theological significance of the Book of Acts? Well, uh, you, you know, your use of the word Judaic is you know sort of a good sort of jumping off point for me to answer the question. You know, the Apostle Paul talks in Romans about how the gospel came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And of course, the church that formed uh, on the day of Pentecost was the church at Jerusalem. And yet, 
it, it formed uh, as, you know, the Church of Jerusalem, which was led by initially an all-Jewish leadership, was like a stick of dynamite uh, that, that, that God had planted to cause an explosive expansion of the gospel from that place. You know, Muslims talk about how Mecca is the center of, of their faith. Christians did and ought to still talk about Jerusalem as the center of their faith, which puts us in the United States on the periphery. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about. America is not the center of the Christian story, contrary to what some people might think. Uh, we are uh, part of the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about when he sent his disciples out to go into all the world. Uh, the good news of that is that we've been included. And, and the book of Acts, um, once the church is established in, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, theologically speaking, as well as practically speaking, was set up to then move forward and advance as a growing global movement that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, when God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Kings of, of the nations around the earth will embrace the faith of Abraham. And, and we see that playing out in sort of its first phases in the book of Acts, where, you know, again, where, where Paul and others first from Jerusalem, and a lot of that dispersion is because of persecution that starts to happen against Christians, and they scatter, and they go into different cities, and they spread the gospel into to the outlying cities, and new churches are formed, and new churches are planted, and the global church is is on its way. And so it, 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 it shifts from a largely national religion, uh, or the Jewish religion of the Old Testament, to a global faith uh, that includes people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Then we see the ultimate fulfillment of that, you know, described when, when the book of Revelation describes the future of the people of God, where every, you know, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around the throne of Christ. And that movement began in the book of Acts. Fire in the attic, a hurricane in the house, the flames fell and the wind blew a new word to fill our mouths. Fire in our hearts and power for our souls. Spirit came into my life to make the scared man bold. So, and, and ex just expand for a minute on the the multi, the many nations. I mean, it, it again, like you say, everyone sort of wants to sometimes claim Christianity for their own little tribe, but this is just blows that all out of out of the water. There, as you say, it's, mm -hmm. talk about yeah. that for a bit. Yeah, I would say one of the greatest barriers initially to evangelism, to inclusion in the temple, was a, a nationalism that formed among the Jewish people uh, where they believed that they had Yahweh, or, or not, all, not all Jewish people, but, but, but some, especially gatekeepers, thought that, that they had a corner on God, that God, you know, Yahweh was exclusively for them. And, you know, in comes the Holy Spirit to blow that all up. You know, it starts with Christ, where we see Christ ministering to Roman centurions. We see him ministering to a Syrophoenician woman. 
course, the Great Commission, where he, he says to go all into all the world and baptize people in his name from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But then in the book of Acts, you know, it starts, you know, this global, this global vision for the church becomes solidified, as it were, when, when God gives a vision to Peter and tells Peter to go visit a Gentile, God-fearing man named Cornelius. And Peter says, I essentially, I thought the Gentiles were unclean. I thought the Gentile food was unclean uh, and I, that we were supposed to avoid Gentiles. And, and God sends him a vision, and that vision convinces him that it's God's will for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius. And, and so, again, it, it's sort of this expansion of the gospel, which leads to a greater inclusion of more people groups. Which was what Jesus talked about. Which is what Jesus talked about in the Great Commission, when he said, "Go into all the world." The, the Greek language there is ta ethne, or all ethnic groups, uh, all people groups, and and so this is just a playing out of that through the church. And this sort of leads me into kind of my next question, which is how does this affect the world today? And I guess the I guess the first thing we could talk about is this as we're speaking the the I don't want to say inclusion of everyone, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. It's now going all over the world. So t- talk about that uh, in in today's context, right? Yeah. So I, my next question was how do, how does all this historic stuff and and this religious theological stuff? I mean, how can that what what is that affecting today? Yeah, I I mean I think that you know the fact that roughly three billion out of the seven billion people who live on Earth right now is is a big part of the answer to that question that that the gospel has traveled around the world and and continues to change lives. Uh, you know I know we have a a narrative about how. The Church of Jesus Christ is supposedly on decline, but that's very much a white Western narrative, a white Western evangelical narrative, uh, when in fact globally the Church is growing more rapidly than it has at any other time in the history of the world, uh, especially in parts of the world where there's persecution, uh, which was the catalytic event that, that led to the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. And, and what was true then is true now where Christians are under the most pressure, tends to be where, where real, authentic, genuine, spirit-filled Christianity grows and, and advances the most. And, and so, you know, really what, what's happening now is, is just a continuation of what got started in the book of Acts. You know, maybe it's like a rocket launching where, where, all, where so much of the power is is used uh, at the beginning to launch the rocket to get that big heavy thing going at warp speed and then it reaches a a cruising level so to speak and then it breaks through the ozone layer and heads for its ultimate destination but you know maybe the book of acts was that explosive launch event and ever since that time the church has been moving 
toward its destination of of a of of a, of a global church in which all of the people uh, that God loves and that God has appointed to eternal life will be reached and gathered in until the return of Christ when He makes all things new. So, so in the Book of Acts, you might say the Book of Acts was the beginning of what you could call an in-between time that we live in right now sort of the first chapter, and we're in one of the later chapters of that in-between time, and that in-between time is the time between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the time that he returns uh, sometime in the future to make all things new and to renew the world. And, and and there are moments uh, I, I think that I mean again this is a, this is a narrative um, book, but there there are definitely things that people try to emulate or they look at and they they find really good like the times when they sold all their possessions and gave to those in need. Do you see that? I mean that obviously was pretty radical. Again, uh, is that something that we need to be doing today? Well, it's hard to find in the developed world <laughs> Christians that that are driven by such radical such a radical spirit of sharing and generosity and not considering our possessions as belonging to us but belonging to God and because they belong to God they also belong to our neighbor, right? That's part of loving your neighbor as yourself is living a life of hospitality and radical generosity. I would say that there's a bit of a sickness called a money sickness, a greed sickness, that plagues especially the affluent Western church, where the latest uh, statistics tell us that roughly 50% of well-to-do Christians, and when I say well-to-do, I mean the richest half of the world, which is everybody who lives on more than $2.50 a day. Well-to-do Christians, 50%, give nothing to the causes of Christ or to their neighbor or to charity, nothing. And uh, only 10% of those claiming to identify as Christians in the developed West give a minimum of 10% of, of their, their increase to the causes of Christ and, and to the needs of their neighbors. And so, so this sickness in certain parts of the world like ours but if you go to places like Ghana, for instance, which is one of the poorest places in the world, the, the most joyful, most celebrated moment in any worship service is when, uh, when they receive an offering. And uh, you know, just recently in, in uh, one of my sermons, uh, relayed a story that, that, Johnny, that we first heard from Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, who, who was telling us that she spent some time in Ghana with some of her team members and they went to a church service and a woman steps up and, you know, joyfully welcomes their American friends. And she says, welcome our American friends to Ghana where we have joy because we need Jesus more. Hmm. So there seems to be an inverse relationship between having wealth and giving wealth uh, to the proportion 
not talking amounts, but proportion that God has called us to give. Poor people give much, much greater proportion of their wealth uh, away to the causes of Christ and to the love of neighbor than wealthy Christians do. And, you know, that's, that's a playing out, perhaps, of what Jesus said, that it's impossible to love God and love money at the same time. It's possible to have, have God and have money, or, or to love God and have money at the same time, but it's not possible to love both. Uh, if money has you around the neck, if, if money is the thing that preoccupies you most, as well as the things that money can get you or that money can secure for you or that money can insure for you, um, you won't be able to become uh, the kind of generous person or community that we see described in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and 4 especially. So, so there are certain parts of the world, uh, ironically, where the greatest proportional generosity is given by those who have very little to nothing. A lot like the widow who gave her might, her small amount yeah. uh, at the temple. And Jesus said that she just gave more than everybody else combined because everybody else gave larger amounts, but out of their excess, whereas she gave up all that she had, probably because she understood faith to be a much more communal thing and a much less individualistic and personal thing. That what belongs to me also belongs to the body of Christ. And I'm, I'm positioned to share by the Lord. And the Lord owns it all. He owns my house. He owns my bank account, my retirement accounts, you know, the chair that I sit in to watch TV, the plates that I put my dinner on. God owns all of it. And it's meant for sharing uh, as God opens the doors of opportunities for that. In the community, when the joy of the Lord is needed to grow on. There's unity in the community, when our brothers and sisters sing the Spirit's song. There's unity in the community, when our walk in the Spirit is needed. Would you say another theme in Acts um, is is love and unity? It, it seems like, uh, I mean, that's so generic to say, but I mean, because people will take that and throw all sorts of meanings on it. But uh, talk about the love and the unity that the the apostles really stressed uh, so uh, fervently in the beginning. Well, love and unity are are a priority for the the early church, but just like now. Love and unity are hard-fought realities. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. You know, even in the book of Galatians, we see how Peter and Barnabas, who's the, you know, the son of encouragement, withdrew themselves from Gentiles because of social pressure, because they would perhaps be looked down on by some people of Jewish descent uh, who wouldn't be supportive of them befriending Gentiles. And so Paul had to call Peter and Barnabas out on that. Uh, so it's hard fought. Uh, but two shining examples in the book of Acts, one is Acts chapter 6, where the Greek, uh, the Greek believers come to the all-Jewish leadership, and they, they identify an injustice, a social injustice, in the church. And they, they, they say that our widows, our Greek widows, are being neglected 
in the distribution of food uh, by the church. And our, our widows are going hungry because of that. And what the all-Jewish leadership did, they didn't just say, we'll take that under advisement. They didn't say, um, okay, we'll take it from here. What they did was they appointed uh, the first ever class of deacons or servants in the church uh, to take care of the issue of Greek widows who were not receiving food. And every single person that was appointed to that first group group of deacons was a Greek. So you have an all-Jewish leadership appointing an all-Greek leadership to lead the church in solving the social injustice in their midst. Then another example would be more along theological lines in, I believe it's Acts chapter 15, and that's where you know, the Jerusalem Council gathers together because there, there, there are some people who are basically teaching the Galatian heresy, that you have to believe in Christ, but you also have to maintain Jewish practices and culture like circumcision and the laws of Moses, especially the Levitical laws, which were more about Jewish culture than they were about biblical ethics and virtue, especially after the coming of Christ. And the Jerusalem Council came together. Again, these are all Jewish people saying, you don't have to act or behave or live like a Jew in order to be a full-fledged Christian. It's kind of like a, uh, the leadership at a white church saying that if you are not a white person and you come to our church, you don't have to start acting white in order to belong here if you're a person of color. In fact, we, we want our church to be a place where you can flourish even more as a person of color and where we can learn, you know, those of us who are in the, the majority, the white majority in this hypothetical situation, we can learn more fully what it means to be a human being created in the image of God by virtue of you bringing your culture and your experience into this community. You know, true multicultural ministry does not look at, at one group, say the minority group, and say, you need to behave and act and adopt all the customs and the music styles and the preferences that the majority has in order to really belong here. Instead, it says the opposite, like the, like the Jewish leaders did in Acts chapter 6. How can our culture, how can our church culture get better with Greek input? but not only input, but with Greek leadership and with Greek influence. And so I think that's something to be learned. When we talk about diverse churches, we have to get way beyond the, uh, the, the, you know, the cosmetic diversity that often passes as diversity, where we say, well, if we have you know, black people and white people and Asian people in the same room, that means we're diverse. Well, no, it doesn't. Or if we have rich people and poor people in the same room or four different generations in the same room, that means we're diverse. No, it doesn't. It doesn't become diverse, and it doesn't become unity until all of the cultures and perspectives come together at the same table where every culture and every perspective has a voice and a seat at the table so that the very best of all cultures can be blended in together as the new us culture, and so that the worst and most unsavory aspects of every culture can be 
confronted by the claims of the gospel. And, and so diversity is hard work. Unity is hard, hard hmm. work. And yet it's, it's worthwhile work. And, and of, all, you know, of all people, I, as a white Western man who has resources, I should greatly appreciate and lean into the, this principle because my hope rests squarely on the shoulders of a first century Middle Eastern Jewish man who became poor so that through his poverty I might become rich. He never spoke a word of English. He didn't hang out with white people. He was actually crucified by white people. And so I, I, am, I am indebted to, to Jesus Christ, who in every, virtually every cultural way is my other, and I am his other. I am the ends of the earth, and yet he has loved me to the uttermost, you know, just, just as he loves the Virgin Mary, and just as he loves the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, he loves me. And so that creates this dynamic that the Bible talks about of, of us now having a debt of love toward our neighbors, especially our neighbors who have less advantages than we do. If someone told me that I'd be loving you today, I'd say they're crazy or at least mistaken. Right, which, and I guess the famous uh, boiling down uh, of of the the law and the prophets, uh, um, love God, love your neighbor, um, and right. I and I love that diversity isn't just cultural; it's also economic. It's uh, even uh, mm-hmm. people with disabilities who so often fall through the cracks. Um, Absolutely, and that again is that's a part another part of the hard work of unity. When uh, even if it's even if it's not a physical disability, it's it, you know sometimes we're with people that we are having a tough time getting along with. They and we are both um, made in the image of God. That's um, right. And and I guess that leads me to the the, the phrase that, that you know as we wrapping up the the kingdom of God. Since this whole this musical is called Kingdom Come, that that is actually spoken about quite a bit. In the New Testament, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In the gospel, the way Jesus describes it, it's just, there's so many different descriptions. It's, it can be overwhelming at times to try to explain it to someone else. Well, the kingdom of God was Jesus's most often taught about subject. He taught more about the kingdom than he taught about love, more about the kingdom than he taught about heaven or hell or salvation. He taught more about the kingdom of God than anything else. And the kingdom of God is, you know, in short, the reign and rule of Christ come to earth. It's, it's his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, you know, when we hear words like kingdom, we, we immediately think about politics and government. And, you know, even, even the prophet Isaiah talks about in chapter 9 how the government will be on his shoulders, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And so the way that Jesus governs 
is not through the president of the United States. It's not through the you know, prime minister of, of England. It's not through, you know, a king or a dictator in some other nation. That's not how Jesus rules. In fact, they wanted to make him into that kind of ruler, and he refused and ran for, for the hills. The way that Jesus rules on earth is through the love and generosity and other-centeredness and self-donation of his people uh, who are filled and empowered, filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit to love their neighbors as themselves as an outworking of their love for God. And the great thing about the kingdom of God is that it's not contained in any zip code or, you know, national identity or ethnic identity, or fill in the blank. The kingdom of God uh, makes its way into every culture. People talk about, well, the Eastern religions and the Western religions, and the, um, but, but, but Christianity is a global religion. It's not an Eastern religion. It's not a Western religion. It's, it's, it's a worldwide movement. It's a worldwide kingdom. And, you know, when Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, about a city on a hill, being salt of the earth, being the light of the world, that's what he's talking about. The kingdom of God is thriving in the world when Christians become among the most life-giving neighbors in the places where they live and work and play. One of the phrases we use at our church sometimes is that the universal job description of every Christian person is to leave the world better than you found it in the name of Christ. And that's how the kingdom of God works its way out. And yes, salvation and you know preaching the gospel and salvation of souls is a, is a huge part of that, as well as rebuilding communities, tending to the poor and to those that Jesus called the least of these, visiting those who are sick and in prison. And like you said, making a, a special place of of privilege and attention for those who are often overlooked or forgotten, like people with disabilities and special needs. You know, Jesus, Jesus seemed very interested in people who were paralyzed, who were born blind, who couldn't walk, uh, and, and so on. Jesus took great interest in lepers and in, in, in people that, that were considered, you know, ignorable. Jesus made them non-ignorable. And, and in fact, gave many of them platforms in the kingdom and you know because he he chooses what we think are the weak things to advance his kingdom and so you know my 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 mentor and and former boss tim keller talks about the kingdom of god as an upside down kingdom that he rules in exactly the opposite way that we expect him to because our kingdoms are built on the acquisition and exertion of power and his kingdom is built on the use of power in order to love and serve our neighbor. Wow. And, uh, you know, like you said, one, one of the things that, that we are doing while we're doing life in this kingdom is, is evangelism, I guess. Um, it leads me to my last kind of point um, about art, music, and theater. Can that be an effective medium uh, for evangelism? I mean, I guess the answer is, is of course, yes. Um, but 
you know, since this is since this this musical is a, is a creative adaptation, it is also in, intended to speak uh, evangelistically about the, the the book of Acts, but also to point to truth. Um, what what can artists and creative people do better, or uh, what has been done great? Just just thoughts about art in in evangelism. Well, uh, you know, in the beginning, God created. And so, you know, to be made in the image of God is to uh, have created creative capacity. And those with more exceptional and extraordinary creative capacity that, that, that might even be their life's calling, uh, absolutely, the arts and, and creativity are a key medium through which to communicate the gospel. You know, the gospel is a story, you know, creation, fall, redemption, glory, and, you know, any, any art form that, you know, demonstrates either overtly or subtly the truth and beauty that, that we find in, in God, in his word, in his vision of what it means to flourish as a human being. It's a tool, it's an instrument in the hands of God. And by the way, here's the beautiful thing about art. God honoring art doesn't have to be created by Christians. Mm -hmm. There are many people who, who are not Christian and yet who are created in the image of God, who have created stunning works of art that bring glory to God. And that's true in the theater. It's true in the world of music. It's true in the, the world of, of painting and sculpture and you know virtually every other art form there, there's there's great overlap between christian and non-christian people and communities in the world of arts and so even that becomes an evangelistic possibility when 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 christians and those who don't identify as christians are in the same room uh sharing the same creative endeavors it can't help but you know, lead to questions of what made you tick, what's inside of you that you had to get out on this canvas, what 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 led to this. And and so there are all sorts of ways the arts can serve that function. Yeah. Well I, I appreciate your time, uh Scott. This is again could scratch the surface for some people. There are a lot of other people who who just are are will be uh happy to dive back in and and, and I I I hope that uh, this talk has opened people's um, minds a little bit uh, about what what the gospel and the kingdom is all about, and um, I hope to see you in in person again hope one day when we're all back out and out and about. Likewise, likewise, I look forward to that, Jeff. I feel a celebration come.